0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health & Wellness channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com.
2: Than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff.
3: Hi, I am Dr. Merrill, and welcome, and thank you for joining us. I know that as a caregiver, your time is very, very short, and, um, you know, it's very valuable. So, I really do appreciate that you've decided to spend your time with us today. So, What we're going to talk about today is being happy that people want to be happy and and it it's just like a movement in the United States. So they're like, I want I want to be like the people on Facebook. You know, I want to be like my friends that are supposedly having great dinners at fabulous restaurants. And their family events are not like my family events where sometimes people are fighting or they're angry or they're whatever. They're all fun-filled, they all look so happy you know oh I don't know what to do so do you find yourself scanning self-help books or thinking I'm going to attend that workshop that I saw advertised because I just know if I attend that workshop I'm going to end up feeling happy I'm going to be less anxious I'm I'm not going to be discontented anymore that's it I know the answer is out there I want to be happy like everybody else in the world and I'm going to be happy well Ruth Whitman is with us today. And Ruth Whitman is the author of America the Anxious How Our Pursuit of Happiness in Creating is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. And Ruth found that as Americans, we spend more time and money on the earth in the pursuit of happiness. And yet, in the midst of all that, we are one of the least contented and most anxious countries in the developed world. It's incredible. So today, we're going to follow Ruth, who is a writer, a journalist, a documentary maker, an author, we're going to follow Ruth on the search through this happiness journey and see where we end up. So, Ruth, welcome to Caught Between Generations. Thanks so much I, for having me. Oh, it's, I'm thrilled to have you. So, Ruth, why do you think that as Americans we're just so obsessed with happiness?
4: Well, you know, it's, it's right there in the founding documents of the country, isn't it? The pursuit of happiness. And there's something very American about this idea that We can all strive to be perfectly, blissfully happy, you know, that this kind of happy ever after is, is out there. And as a British person arriving in California, which is probably the epicenter of many of these kinds of trends, it was a real culture shock to see just how often this topic came up when I was talking to people. You know, I would talk to moms in the playground or I would talk to, you know, the dry cleaner or in the grocery store. And people would be almost agonizing about how happy they were you know am i happy am i happy enough you know would i be happier with a different partner or a different you know a different job or with, with if my kids were different and you know all the rest of it and people really kind of
3: almost driving themselves crazy thinking about happiness so you discuss two types of conversations about happiness that, that you seem to hear as you, as you did this work throughout the country, okay? So one of them was called the agonizing kind, and the second was the... In- uh, <laughs> okay I'm not happy because I'm gonna mispronounce this word okay I know what you you're say, That's <laughs> I what you're say. <laughs> okay so I'm having yeah. my own senior moment guys okay all right so so Ruth yeah, can you absolutely. can you talk to us about these two kinds right? Because, yeah, so, so the conversations, you know, as I
4: said, the topic came up all the time in various different ways. And they tended to break down into two basic kinds of conversations. The ones that I sort of thought of as the agonizing conversations were all about these big questions, you know as I was saying, am I happy? Am I as happy as I could be? Could I be happier if I took up yoga or meditation or read this self-help book? Or, you know, should I be as happy as all those people on my social media feed who look much happier than me? You know, almost this sort of very um, anxious-ridden approach to thinking about happiness. And then the other type of conversation was what I came to think of as the evangelizing type. So these were people who really felt that they had pinned down that secret to the happy ever after and wanted to tell you about it. So whether that was um, a mindfulness workshop or, you know, positive thinking or writing in a gratitude journal or some kind of self-help book, you know, people were saying, here's the answer, I've got it. And those kinds of conversations really made happiness almost feel like quite a lot of hard work. I mean, people almost talked about becoming happier in the same way that people talk about going on a diet, you know it's it's not there's not much pleasure involved in it, but it's going to make me a better person if I just knuckle down and do all these things. You know there's something a little bit joyless about
3: it. So Ruth, do you think that it it may be a, to some extent a semantical problem. So what people are really striving for maybe is not so much happiness as it is just contentment that that they're feeling at peace? Or do you think it really is happiness that they're really trying to get after?
4: That's a really good point. And I think people do tend to confuse the two. So I think all of this gets lumped in together. And people think, I just want to be happy. But they don't really know what that means. And I think for all of us, you know, it's a very natural human instinct to want to be happy. But I think there's something about American culture in particular, Western culture generally, but perhaps particularly in America, where we're raising the bar all the time for what happiness should look like. Our expectations have become very unrealistic. So it's almost this culture that promotes that we should be positive and happy all the time. And that happiness is this kind of glittering thing on the horizon that if we just do another thing, if we just do another thing, we're, we're going to reach it. It's a very, very high bar for what happiness should look like. And I think social media feeds into this a lot. I think that we now have, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, this very glossy picture of everybody else's life, which really, frankly, I think we all know deep down is quite unrealistic. But still plays
3: into our own fears and anxieties about how happy we really should be somehow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me on a personal note, actually, something, you know, thoughts about being happy were actually were ne- were never something I really thought about, actually, until right. I started to look at Facebook more right. frequently. <laughs> and then yeah. And then I began... Then I began to think about it because I was watching a friend of mine in Chicago. I mean, it's like every other weekend she's in an, or every weekend, she's in another restaurant, you know, talking about the fabulous food (laughs) she's having and how happy they are. Then there's this other friend out in California, and and he always seems to be doing this and doing that, and they seem so happy, you know. And then I talked to his wife, and she's like, you know, I was just really angry because you know. You know, (laughs) and yet they look so happy and I'm telling you I never really thought about being happy until I started to look at all these other people and thought, Oh my yeah. god And comparing.
4: Yes. I mean there's good research that shows that the more often people look at Facebook and Instagram the unhappier they become and they sort of broke down why that was and it is because of this social comparison thing. And then the weird thing about it is that I find myself doing it as well you know I sort of think oh people just you know put such an unrealistic picture up you know they're not lying exactly but they're putting up their really are putting up their highlights and then I find myself doing the exact same thing I mean I remember there was this time when I went apple picking in the fall with them with my kids and you know frankly it was not the best day in the world it was really hot there were no bathrooms the kids were whining the entire time the fruit was all bruised you know But then I put up two pictures on Facebook of the two probably milliseconds in the whole day when everybody was smiling (laughs) and we had a bunch of apples and ever and everybody <laughs> looking at that must have felt the exact same anxieties that I feel when I look at their Facebook feeds and think oh you know why, why doesn't my apple picking day look like that you
3: know I know I mean I, I don't, I don't want kind to kind of complicit <laughs> in it aren't we <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't want to believe the point we'll quickly get off of this but it's true I mean I found myself I ended up laughing at myself because I ended up Talking to my husband is something about a weekend, and I said I show him these pictures. I'm like, look, we need to be with like them, you know. We need to have <laughs> yeah, happier, more fun-filled <laughs> weekends. He's <laughs> looking at me like, oh my gosh, what is what <laughs> world are <laughs> you in? <laughs> okay, we're gonna not, go I on. You run at me, but yeah, okay. But it's, I, it's I, very true. So I'm sorry. Did you have another thought you wanted to share before I leave? That sorry. No, it's just that sometimes it can even be hard to enjoy
4: the moment when you're actually in it because you're thinking about what you're going to put on Facebook about, you know,
3: which is which is just ridiculous. So, you know, I think I think that's a very modern problem, isn't it? So, in your book, you quote some research and and this is a direct quote that says the more people valued and were encouraged to value happiness as a separate life goal, the less happy they really were. Yeah, I, I, found that, I found that amazing.
4: Really, really fascinating research that comes out of UC Berkeley. Some psychologists there have done a series of experiments. And um, it, as, as you said, it shows that the, the research shows that the more emphasis people place on happiness in their own life, the more they value it, the more relentlessly they pursue it, the more likely they are to show symptoms of unhappiness, even depression and also loneliness, which is strange. And they, they, you know, they actually um, broke this down in the, in the lab. They have this strange happiness lab, which I visited, you know, and had electrodes put to my head and all the rest of it and all kinds of measures of happiness taken. And you know, it's not just that... Um, you know, when you have these kinds of studies, you can see, oh, well, which way around does this go? Is it just that people who are already unhappy tend to value happiness more highly, or is it something about the valuing of happiness that makes people unhappy? So, you know, which direction does it go in? And they actually found through their research that it was the second way around, that actually the more you pursue happiness, the more unhappy you become, which is quite chilling really in a way.
3: Is that, do you think, because we're, we're just like working on it so hard that you can't be happy because you're too busy working? Well, I mean, yeah, what do you think that's think- all about? I think what the,
4: what the psychologists at UC Berkeley were saying, were the, the, the theory that they came up with, was that perhaps you're focusing so hard on yourself. You know, if you're thinking about your own happiness, you're thinking by definition about yourself. And, you know, am I happy? You're questioning yourself. You're wondering about your own emotions. And it sort of almost stops you getting as involved in situations and thinking about other people and, you know, becoming more social. And I think we also know as a separate point that. Social connections, social interactions are such a huge part of our happiness that, you know, that focusing too much on ourselves can take us away from that.
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go back to the issue of social connectedness and relationships it <laughs> it in, in after the break. But but what I wanna ask you about is is I just found this whole thing about the so called happiness industry, you know, yeah. really, really interesting. So can you share with us some examples of the types of products or services um that are in the happiness industry? Yeah, so th- I was really surprised
4: to discover that this so-called happiness industry, you know, the self-help industry, all those books and apps and coaching and courses is worth about $11 billion to the economy. So to put that in context, it's about the same size as Hollywood, you know, the other great purveyors of this happy ever after message. And then on top of that, there's this new-ish, you know, sort of old slash new branch to the happiness industry, which I've come to think of as a kind of, spiritual industrial complex somehow, you know, which involves, you know, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, things that started up as kind of Eastern um, ancient traditions that have been brought into a kind of more consumer marketplace here in the U.S. And that's worth probably a similar amount, again, in terms of financial outlay. And, you know, there are many, many different products on the market. I tried quite a few of them as part of my research for my book, America, The Anxious. I went and I did the Landmark Forum, which is quite a well-known self-help weekend, very intense and strange weekend. I I did some
3: positive psychology exercises. Right. I'm I'm going to ask you to kind of hold that. Okay, because yeah. we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come oh, back, yeah. I, I really want you to talk a little bit more um, about your personal experiences with that. Because I found that a a very very interesting uh, part of your book. But stay with us we're, when you come when we come back. We're going to talk about more about the happiness industry and that the only people that are really happy are the people who are making huge amounts of money in this billion dollar uh, happiness industry. But stay with us.
2: At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain in Involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1 800 472 5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at saracare.com. S A R A H care.com.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Ruth Whitman, who is the author of America the Anxious How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Uh, and right before the break, we were talking about this multi billion dollar industry, uh, this happiness industry, and Ruth was just beginning to talk to us about her personal investigations and her experiences uh, in the happiness industry. So, Ruth, can you continue talk, sharing that with us?
4: Yeah, well, when I first started researching this book, I was really interested in this whole happiness industry, this multi-billion dollar um, you know, business model that sort of sells happiness to people in the form of self-help books and courses and coaching and all the rest of it. And I wanted to to go out and sample some of these things and find out for myself, you know, there's there's very little regulation in this industry and there's very little evidence that any of this stuff actually works. But, you know, some people swear by it, some people love it or the rest of it. So... So, for instance, I went and tried uh, something called the Landmark Forum, which is a self-help weekend workshop, well, actually three-day workshop, that um, I, over a million Americans have taken. And it's, it comes out of um, a thing from the 70s called Est, which was a very, very intense, extreme thing that people used to do, where they used to go and be locked in a hotel ballroom and um, you know basically shouted at for three days until they kind of caved. <laughs> and the landmark forum is a slightly gentler version of it but still carries many of the same techniques and ideas. And it it's in a similar way, you go, you sit in a room with a hundred other people, you are there for very, very long hours, you start early in the morning, you finish at ten o'clock at night, you sit for hours and hours and hours and everybody shares their darkest secrets and their most you know, damaging and personal revelations about, you know, abuse and about their childhoods and about, you know, every their relationships, every kind of abandonment, every kind of difficult problem you can imagine in life. You know, some really heart-wrenching stuff. And the, there's a leader there who kind of breaks people down and tries to get everyone to admit that their problems are really all their own responsibility they don't use the word fault but they use the word responsibility but it can kind of come across as the same thing and people cry and people crack and people accept that the reason why they feel certain things is you know uh because of themselves because of things that they've done and they take responsibility for their own happiness and i found the whole thing really quite distressing um i was there i started to feel sick i started to feel anxious i started to feel very nervous. Lots of people found it completely transformational. I found it very psychologically difficult. By the end of it, I felt almost kind of broken by it. I, I, in
3: reading me. your in reading your description of it, I wondered if the the reason some people you know found it is because um so good is because these were deep, deep secrets that they've never really disclosed to anyone. Um, and just the telling of it. Um, just just was a release for them um, because they've yes. held this within and they've never ever disclosed this.
4: I think that might m- might well be very true for some people. I think, as you say, you know, just finally being able to talk to somebody about it. I'm not sure that that is the most healthy environment to do it in, but for some people, it does work. I think it's partly that they kind of whip up a feeling. You know, you have limited breaks limited food you know you have limited sleep by the time you've done all this you've done the exercises you've been there for these very very long hours you're kind of in a state quite a vulnerable state and they kind of g up an atmosphere of almost like a tent revival kind of atmosphere you know like a big i don't know if you've ever seen these kind of big church revival type things but they g up an atmosphere a bit like that so everybody gets whipped up into this very very emotional state and i think it's easy for people to to feel um, that something transformational is happening in that moment, and yeah, it might well be that this this technique just really works very very well for some people and not and not for others.
3: Is there any research that um, that looked at any follow up, like where are these people six months later or a year later? And it's an interesting point. I mean, some of the. Uh, the
4: you know, many of the people really subscribe to the landmark forum, and they continue to go on many, many courses. So they do. You know, it's not just their first course that I did; that's the initial one. But then they try and sign you up for the advanced one, and then the the teaching one, and then the, the longer one, and then the this one, and that one. So I think people get very into the system and just keep going and going and going and doing more and more of these things, and it can be very, very expensive. I mean, the initial course is about six hundred dollars, and then I think the advanced one is around about eight hundred, and then people shell out for more and more of these things. So they obviously. Either feel that they're getting something great out of it and they just want to keep going, or they're somehow kind of locked into this system where they can't stop. Um, I think people's reactions to it vary. I mean, the Landmark Forum will obviously say that it's extremely transformational for for, uh, everybody that goes on it. Other people, or or the majority of people that go on it. um, I know people who had the same reaction as me and said, oh my goodness, it was was awful. And, And I think everything in between...
3: So, in your research on the, the happiness industry, I mean, did you find anything that you thought, you know, I hate to say this, might kind of be the answer or seem to work for the majority of people?
4: Yeah, well, one thing that I found, so, you know, I did I did a range of things when I was looking into this topic, and I was very keen to find things that did work as well as just things that didn't, And you know, I wasn't going out looking for, for scams or for trouble. There was one thing that across the board, you know, in all of the research, the serious academic research on happiness and kind of common sense and from just talking to people, you know, I talked to many hundreds of, uh, of different people through the course of this project. The one thing that consistently really did make a huge difference to people's happiness, both in the research and in kind of real life, as it were, is people's social relationships. You know, the strengths of the relationships that we have with other people. That is the biggest, the single biggest factor in our happiness. And that looks different for different people, you know. I think that shows itself up in different ways. Some people are introverts and just would prefer to have a couple of close friends. Other people are extroverts and like to be out at parties and all the rest of it all the time. But equally across the board, social relationships are the single most important thing. And that's what I I kept finding.
3: But yet, in some of the research that you cite, it looks as if um, the amount of time that we spend in meaningful social relationships ha- is really decreasing. Is is that accurate?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the the really worrying trends in American life is that the time that we are spending on real life socializing is really going down and down. And that's for various reasons. I mean, partly to do with technology, we're kind of replacing our real world interactions with online interactions with smartphones, the rest of it. And that's especially true for the younger generation. You know, uh, religious affiliation, that used to be a huge thing that people would meet at the church social or the synagogue or the mosque or whatever. And now that's kind of being, you know, religious participation is going down. And the kind of spiritual techniques that we have tend to be all about being on our own. So things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, those are things about having a very private emotional experience rather than a social or collective emotional experience and so yes and Americans I mean I was shocked to discover there are time use surveys where you know that the government tracks how people in America spend their time and there's this category on the time use survey called socializing and communicating which amazingly, it doesn't just cover the good stuff. So it's not just, you know, the heart-to-hearts with your best friend or the wonderful, adoring conversations with your, with your spouse or whatever, but also all the arguing and the nagging and the bitching and the whining, all of that as well. All lumped in together, the average American spends only half an hour a day on all forms of socializing and communicating when that's the main thing that they're doing rather than it being an incidental part of something else. And, you know, to put that another way, We know that the single most important thing for our happiness is our relationships with other people. But yet, out of every 24 hours in the day, we spend 23 and a half of them doing pretty much anything but that.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I watch people all the time. You know, as a a therapist, you know, I'm very interested in, obviously, in behavior. You know, I see families I see people in restaurants uh, they're waiting for their food and what are they doing they're everyone's on their iPhone you know no yeah. one's lo- uh, looking at each other no one's talking um, I mean I just I see it all the time we talk about it in parenting with, with you know people with kids and they're kind of half listening to the kids but you know basically you know they're on their iPhones um, yeah and I, so I mean
4: it's like crack
3: isn't it having an iPhone in your pocket you just you know, and I'm the same, I find myself,
4: you know, I, I should be having a lovely time doing a puzzle or a game with one of my kids, and I find myself just checking another email and just to make sure that, oh, and what was that thing on Facebook and whatever, you know. I find myself looking at pictures, the, the weird thing was I found myself looking at pictures of my own kids on my phone when I was actually <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> What's going on, you know? <laughs> the ones in the picture are, more, are better behind than the ones in real life. <laughs> they don't
0: <laughs> want <wine. laughs> <laughs>
3: Good. All right, we're going to, right before we uh, go for break, I, I just want to quote something um, from uh, Ruth's book, all right, um, that basically came um, out of an online article from UC Berkeley. And I, I just want to talk about it from a professional uh, perspective. And the quote is, the upshot of 50 years of happiness research is that the quantity and quality of a person's social connections, friendships, relationships with family, Members, closeness to neighbors, etc., is so closely related to well-being and personal happiness, the two can practically be equated. And the other thing that social connectedness can be equated with is is health. All right, the more social connections we have. The, the healthier we actually are. It really has an impact on us um, physically. And so I want to just step aside for a moment um, as the host of the show and just talk to you just for a few seconds um, about Sarah Care and the and the value of adult day health centers or adult day care centers. Because the advantage of an adult day care center is that when you're senior who needs some type of care or supervision during the day, because they've had stroke or Parkinson's disease or they're very frail or they're depressed or isolated or whatever the reason is that you don't want to leave them at home during the day, is that they come into a Sarah Care Center and they, and they meet people and they're with people and they have those social connections. So there is a time and a place and a role for home care and I would never say that that's not important because in some situations it is, but that's kind of a one-on-one if you're lucky and the home care worker is not on their iPhone, um, which unfortunately is often the case. So I'd like you to think through about for seniors uh, who need some type of care supervision during the day and the value of a Sarah Care Center or an adult daycare center where they can make those social connections and how important that is for their mental health and for their physical health. So thank you for listening to that. We, we're we going to go to break. And when we come back, I really want to talk to Ruth uh Um, About this push for happiness in corporations, and then we're going to talk a little bit about parenting styles. We'll be right back.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know. He was at SarahCare Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know SarahCare LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At SarahCare Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at SarahCare
1: follow the voice america talk radio network on twitter we're at voice america trn you'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows. This week's featured guests and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media.
2: Can you keep up? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: To Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merlin. I'm here with Ruth Whitman, and we've been talking about her book, America, the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. And we spent some time talking about the happiness industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. And now I want to talk to Ruth a little bit about corporations, um, companies. And as, as most of us know, there's been a big push in the recent years for corporations for health and wellness programs, um, and some of it has to do with decreasing health care costs, which which is still important because the people are healthier and, and they're doing better. It works for everybody that's involved. But when I read Ruth's book, I was really um, taken aback to find that there are corporations who... For what of a better word, have happiness programs where they're kind of like requiring their employees to be happy and to have fun. So, Ruth, can you share a little bit of information with us about that? Some examples?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is becoming quite a big trend. That they're, and that these, these happiness programs within the workplace are, you know, they take different forms, but, you know, in its purest form, um, For example, I went to visit a company called Zappos, which um, is an online shoe store. It's actually owned by Amazon now. And their whole company ethos is directed towards what they call delivering happiness. Their CEO wrote a book, actually, by that name, Delivering Happiness. And the whole place is, it's like parades, it's balloons, it's wigs, it's funny hats. They have happiness courses that they go on. They follow the principles of positive psychology and they have this very they have this principle called work life integration. You know, you've probably heard the phrase work life balance, which is, you know, the idea that you have equal time for work and for, for, for life, you know, whatever that means. But work life integration is this idea that everything should be sort of lumped in together. So that your workplace should provide all your socializing, your happiness, your you're going out drinking with your friends, you're partying. And instead of going outside of the workplace to find those things, you could actually find them at work. And it's a real blurring of the line. So they have this, you know, they call it their company culture. And you have to be a kind of fun, upbeat person and socialize out of hours with your colleagues and go out drinking and partying with them out of hours. And that's almost considered, not quite, but very close to being a requirement of the job. I think that the the problem I mean there are many problems with this. One of them is this idea that you know anybody can really be expected to perform emotionally, like to be happy and upbeat all of the time, is just so unrealistic and so much pressure on people. And this idea that you know your leisure time somehow becomes the property of your boss as well, I think is quite a worrying a worrying trend. you know its it's a lot of pressure on people. It means that you don't really have time to form those genuine social relationships outside of work and you know I saw various examples of this
3: go ahead I'm sorry go ahead
4: no I just saw various examples of this you know in in different corporate cultures and it takes different forms but I think you know there's something ever so slightly sinister about it you know I want to clock off from work I don't want to you know I enjoy I've had many friendships with colleagues over the years and I enjoy seeing them but I kind of want that to be on my own time I don't want that to be a requirement of my job
3: you know I'm involved in um, something right now where there's 15 companies there's 15 of us that were chosen for this project and we're meeting together and in one of the sessions we were talking about behavioral interviewing for jobs and and one of the companies was look talking about the questions that they ask on the interview and the faculty member for this said well well I don't understand what's your goal for these kinds of questions and they said well we want to make sure you know this person and fits in with our corporate culture that you know they're going to want to yeah. go bowling, they're going to want to go drinking um, yeah. afterwards, you know, blah blah blah, and you know, and all of this because well, they don't fit in. And 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 she said, well, don't you want to know if they can do the job? All right. <laughs> it was a really true. I mean, I interviewed the
4: human resources manager from Zappos, and she said that employees from this company go through two completely separate recruitment processes. One is the classic one, you know, which is, can you do the job, are you qualified, or the rest of it. And the other one is this cultural interview, which is, yes, yeah, does your face fit? Will you be fun? And the actual stated criteria, I mean, this is actually in their company materials, is would the CEO, Tony Shea, want to have a beer with this person? That's one of the criteria for whether you get hired or not. And they say that this cultural fit is every bit as important as the other piece, which is, you know, can you do the job? And if it turns out that you don't, and they're very upfront about this, if, they, if it turns out that you're not a so-called cultural fit, that you're not this fun, upbeat, whatever person, you can get fired from your job for
3: that. Yeah, you, you know, know I'm pretty worrying. Yeah, I, I mean, I will tell you, I had a very strong response um, upon hearing this. And I said to this particular company, you know, really, I said, you have no idea what is going on in people's lives. I said, without naming names, right. I'm going to tell you that two of my staff members, one of whom has an autistic child, all right, she, she's not going out drinking afterwards she's right. not going out bowling she'd love yeah. to but believe me that's not the reality of her life and and yeah. one of my other staff members husband has cancer and he's in the middle of chemo and radiation you know right. and, and so what you're going to say that because she's not you know playing bocce ball okay that she shouldn't be here because we're part right. of a happiness culture it just it really got me upset when, when yeah, I heard absolutely. all of this yeah, you know. and I think it discriminates
4: against people. You know, I think at a very fundamental level it discriminates against women because uh, usually, you know, maybe this shouldn't be the case, but it often is that women are primary caregivers in the family, so maybe don't have the time to go out drinking and socializing all the time with them. It, I think it's a real problem for diversity because it becomes this kind of does your face fit kind of culture rather than, you know, are you, uh, are you actually good at the job?
3: Well, um, actually... Yeah sorry Ruth I keep doing this to you no, I get go, so excited about this I was gonna say that actually when I read your book I got so excited when I read the book that I actually called a friend of mine who's also a colleague and who actually was in the middle of a business negotiations with one of the companies that you that you mentioned in your book and I oh, wow. I, I, called, I called her and I said I am buying you this book, and I am bringing you this book. You have got to read this, <laughs> all right? Oh, thank I, said, you. I, I said, I said, because I am telling you what's going on, and the reason your negotiations with them have suddenly, and you can't imagine why, have gone down the tubes, is because you are not fun, my friend. You are not fitting into the <laughs> culture. <not> <laughs> and you know that's that's really
4: fascinating. And thank you for for, for for sharing the book. But you know, I mean, there's nothing like a bit of pressure saying you're not fun enough you know you've got to be more fun to make you really feel not fun at all I mean you know if that's supposed to make people happy you know it's almost like a bullying people into happiness you know on pain of being fired I mean is that really how to make people actually happy and you know a lot of these companies where they have all this happiness training and happiness workshops and fun 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 often i'm not necessarily and I, you know i'm not necessarily referring to zappos here but many companies are, do not actually treat their staff in the best way so you know instead of having vacation benefits you have a happiness workshop you know instead of having paid health care you go on a wellness workshop and i think these are the these are some of the problems you know they're ignoring the fundamentals of what actually makes Somebody's life secure, content, and happy, and throwing in all these sort of fancy extras and balloons and parades and streamers, and you know, and, you know using it almost as a smokescreen to to take away from the basics.
3: Right. I mean, I actually, at, at our Monday morning strategy meeting with my own management staff, was was talking about this to them. And, and their initial response was, woohoo, that sounds great. You know, we should do this. We should have, you know, more fun. Actually, we should stop eating all these cookies and have more fun, you know, and, and so on and so on. And I said, oh, that's great. You know what? You know, it's like every day now between one and two, you know, we're going to be playing games, And there was this silence at the table and they said, Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa. Wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does that mean I still have to get all my work done? And I said, Yeah, sure, but we're gonna be having fun between one and two And they're like a (laughs) we're too busy
4: having fun. I know. You know, it doesn't really sound
3: like that much fun, apart from anything else. So yeah, right. And if I have have to stay at work an extra hour instead of being able to go home to my family and friends, it's like, well, let's rethink this fun thing here. So yeah. So yeah, right. (laughs) Ruth, Mm. let's talk about um, this whole movement and pursuit of of happiness, um, and how it. um, We'll just kind of begin the discussion before the break to talk about how this kind of impacts um, parenting styles. Yeah I, mean, I, yeah, I mean, this was a really interesting piece of
4: my research for, for this book, America the Anxious, because I, when I first arrived in, um, in the States, I had one young kid. I've now got two and, and pregnant with my third one. And so I was really immersed in American parenting culture and specifically California parenting culture, which I think is, is kind of extreme. But I think there's this trend which is kind of across the board, which is in the same way that people in the States are very fascinated and infatuated with the pursuit of their own happiness, they even more so about their own children's happiness. We are becoming obsessed with our kids' happiness, you know, in making them happy at every moment, in removing obstacles and negativity and making sure that they have this perfectly magical childhood and upbringing. And I think we're, all of the research is pointing in the direction that it's actually driving the kids crazy. You know, it's I, not having the desired outcome.
3: Ruth, I want you to hold that thought. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break when we come back. I want to continue talking about that and um, the issue of how wanting to make our children extremely happy leads them into a situation where they never fail um, and, and the impact of that, really, on our children as they get older.
0: We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America.
2: At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for
0: seniors who need assistance and support
2: during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants transportation and financial assistance is available call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how sarah care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com that's s-a-r-a-h care.com Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at vapresspass.com. That's vapresspass.com. VA PressPass by Voice America. All access all the time.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: Listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm here with Ruth Whitman, who is the author of America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. And before this last break, we were beginning to talk about how this pursuit of happiness, I mean, it's it's really almost to the extreme at times, um, is impacting us as parents. And, And so, Ruth, you were beginning to share with us, you know, this movement, uh, in the United States. The parents feel though, so, you know, it's like critical. Their children be happy at all times.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is something that came across really clearly. I think, you know, and I'm not necessarily advocating for this, but, you know, where back in the UK where I'm from, I think there's just a sort of slightly stricter, slightly more... Um, you know, the approach is more, you know, the parents in charge, you do, as I say, a little bit, which I'm not saying is necessarily the best way. But when I came to the States, I noticed it was very much child led, this idea that, um, you know, children really should be happy all the time. And it was our job as parents to kind of almost build this Flawlessly happy child. You know, it was, it was something that we could control and we could do by making everything magical and wonderful. And, you know, different trends. I mean, here around near where we live in California, um, this thing called attachment parenting is very, very big. And, you know, many of the, the um, aspects of this are, are very good and healthy. You know, lots of breastfeeding, co sleeping, that sort of thing. But it's this idea that you cannot put your child down. Um, you know, they need to be like literally attached to your body as much as it is physically possible and people are exhausted i mean it's exhausting for the for the parents and it's not necessarily having the best outcomes for the child and also this idea that you know we can never really let our children fail, you know, that we have to make every moment magical and everything a prize and everything everything great, I think this impulse, you know, it's like this, this thing that people always say about the Queen in England, you know, the Queen thinks the whole world smells of fresh paint because everywhere she goes, you know, people are painting frantically before she turns up. And I think that's sort of how we are treating our children in a way, that we're trying to make everything wonderful and everything magical, you know, often at great cost to the parents, you know, great exhaustion, emotional cost. But, yes, it's kind of backfiring, I think. I think we're driving our children crazy.
3: Yeah, well, you know, we did uh, an earlier show um, with Jessica Leahy, and and she wrote a book about, um, you know, not letting children fail. And, And it was Jessica's theory that, you know, when we continually, you know, support children and protect them, um, and we don't let them fail, that they don't learn then how, how to fail. You know, they don't learn resilience. They don't learn, you know, how to pick themselves up when something goes wrong. Um, and so when they grow up and they're away from us, you know, they just can't handle any, any degree, even a small degree or a large degree of failure, um, because the fact of the matter is we're not happy every minute of the day and things happen and so you, you have to be able to handle it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. and I think that you know the research that we're seeing and the, the anecdotal evidence as well that we're seeing from you know college um, admissions directors, therapists and college campuses is that the levels of mental health problems um, amongst young adults now you know college age kids are really on the rise and co- college kids are experiencing really unprecedented anxiety depression and other mental health issues but yet this is the same generation that's been parented in this very intense very very helicoptering way the way that says you know we're going to make you happy at all times but, you know what can we do to to you know how can i support you through this i mean this is this thing i saw this um This kid in the park, you know, not long after we arrived, having a huge tantrum, the kind of thing that toddlers do, that mine mine do all the time, you know, this huge tantrum because he didn't want to go home for lunch. And, you know, I think in the UK, the response to that would have been to just kind of pick the kid up and off you go. And the mother was saying, you know, how can I support you through this to the child? You know, how can I support you through this tantrum? And it was such an unusual way of addressing it. And I think it's this idea that everything, you know, has to be child-led, the that, that uh, the child cannot be experiencing these negative emotions. So I think, as you say, really does lead to the point that when, as they get older, they really don't have the resilience to deal with their ups and downs of, of normal life.
3: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, as a therapist, we always talk about with kids, you know, external control versus internal control. And, you know, when kids are very little, the control is external. It has to be. They, they, you know, they don't have the coping mechanisms or the ways to really deal with things. But as they mature and get older, we want them to have what, what is called internal control, you know, that they can... You know, control their environment, and they can figure out what's going on, um, and they and they can work it out. But you know, when the the locus of control is always external, it's a problem. You know, I see it as a serious problem um, yeah. with kids. So, um, Ruth, what do you think is, is going on? What, why do you think as Americans, you know, and, and I know you did say this in a very positive way because I've read the book and I know how positive you are. So it's, it's not ex- exactly like the rest of Western Europe versus um, the Americans. But, but why do you think that as a country we're, we're just, you know, so focused on happiness?
4: It's a, it's a really, um, interesting question. I think it is, it's a very fundamental part of American culture. I mean, there it is, right in the Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it really is one of the founding principles of this country. And I think the people here are very, very wedded to this idea of positivity, you know, and it's a lovely quality, you know, being smiley and happy and friendly. All of these are great things about Uh, American people and American culture. But I think the flip side is this feeling that there's a kind of almost squeamishness about negativity, about, you know, feeling bad about anything. I mean, uh, you know, having said that, when we first arrived, which was coming up for six years ago, there was a really stark difference on that front between British culture and American culture. You know, I used to say you could blindfold me and read me out the Facebook statuses of my friends and I could tell you instantly which ones were British and which ones were American I mean, the American ones were all like having the best day ever, you know snuggled up with the best man on the, in the universe you know, I love my husband and the the British ones would always kind of be you know, I'm waiting for a bus and it's raining and it's rubbish, <laughs> and whatever and, you know but, so it was just so clear the, the cultural difference and I think the British are kind of a little bit suspicious of that happy ever after you know it's a bit like oh you know let's just have a nice cup of tea and, and that's enough but <laughs> you know I think the British culture is moving more in the American direction and I think especially as this kind of happiness industry as I've called it has grown and grown and become a kind of global thing that actually you know the, the I kind of call it, called it in the book a kind of global happiness almost a kind of You know, this expectation of positivity all the time is kind of creeping across the world. So I think maybe, you know, the American way is is being shared. But, yeah, I think it is just a very, very fundamental part of American culture.
3: We've been talking to Ruth Whitman, who is the author of America, The Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Ruth, share with us your contact information and any last thoughts that you have.
4: Oh, well, thanks so much for having me today. You can check out my website, which is Ruth Whitman, with two P's in the middle, W-H-I-P-P-M-A-N dot com. And my book is America the Anxious, um, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. It's out in paperback on Tuesday next week.
3: Um, You can order it on Amazon, any good bookshop. And thank you again for having me. Well, Ruth, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the book, and and I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I won't say go and be happy. I won't say that to you, Ruth. <laughs> Can be miserable. <mid-level. laughs>
2: <Thank you. laughs>
3: so this is this is Dr. Barrow. As always, I ask you to do just one thing for yourself. Actually, this week I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me, and that is I would love for you to email me your thoughts about. About this week's show, about being happy, and and how you think it impacts your life, and how you handle that, and if you have suggestions for other people, especially those that are caregivers, because sometimes it's really really hard uh, to think about happiness when we are busy caring for someone else. So I'd like you to email me and give me your thoughts and share those with me. So. Once again, it's Dr. Merle. Take really good care of yourself. And remember, you're just very, very important to a lot of people in your life. So take good care.
2: Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.